I have been covering issues around parenting in the United States and the social safety net that does not exist for us for about 10 years before I wrote the book. But it wasn't until I got pregnant with my older daughter, all these issues that were sort of statistical or reported work that I did became incredibly personal. You are listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 415. Today, we're talking about the unsustainability of American motherhood with Jessica Gross. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Welcome, welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Listen, if you haven't done so, please. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And if you get some value from this podcast, please go over to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and review. It just helps the podcast grow more and it just makes such a big difference. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. In just a moment, I'm going to be talking to Jessica Gross, an opinion writer at The New York Times and author of Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. And we're going to talk about how American mothers are struggling. I mean, obviously, right? Like it's hard. It's crazy hard. But there are some clear reasons for this and some reasons that really go back into our history. So we're going to learn why American motherhood is unsustainable and what we can do about it. Join me at the table as I talk to Jessica Gross. Are you struggling with kids fighting, yelling, and more despite listening to the podcast and reading all the books? Parenting can be so overwhelming and exhausting. You know, I see you and I have something that will help. Mindful Parenting SOS. I'm offering free live mindful parenting sessions starting Monday, May 6th. Basically, live mindful parenting lessons that you normally have to pay for. So if you struggle with getting your kids to listen, tantrums, misbehavior, and feeling the guilt of yelling at your kid, then you should definitely get your spot in Mindful Parenting SOS. I'll be there to answer your questions in person, and if you can't make it, we will have replays available. Don't wait to get your spot now. It's free. Go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash SOS to register. That's mindfulmamamentor.com slash SOS. I can't wait to see you there. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Jessica, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk about your book, um, Screaming on the Inside, very provocative title, and I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, Since we're talking about sort of motherhood and and parenting and all of those things, I like to kind of compare what is happening now, kind of what was happening before. And maybe we could start with like what for you, how were you raised and what was your childhood like? And maybe like what what did you perceive your mom's experience to be like since we're talking about motherhood? Um, I had a really nice childhood. Um, overall, I think very secure, um, very involved 
both my parents. I think my dad was sort of unusually involved in our raising for an 80s and 90s dad. Um, I would say he probably played with us more than my mom did, although I didn't notice it at the time. You know, when I became a mother myself, my mom would always say, I really didn't like playing with you guys. I always (laughs) left it to dad. Um, She was more there for the emotional support. Um, So they both worked. And that was just completely normal to me. And so two working parents, two careers that were sort of equal um, in stature. They met in medical school, so they're both physicians. Um, And yeah, I have an older brother. Um, I saw my mom as being able to really do both um, in a way that didn't seem particularly fraught. Um, I think you know, thinking back as an adult on her experience, I see a lot of ways that she had to fight to get to where she is um, that I didn't have to fight. Um, And so in some ways, I think she actually felt less guilty um, about certain things because it was just like, I'm fighting so hard to be where I want to be in my career. I don't have time to feel bad about it. Like it's, I'm trailblazing here, you know? Um, You know, she was one of only five women in her medical school class. So um, Hmm. I think she just didn't really think that much about what the expectations were of her um, as a typical mom. Uh, And she was one of, you know, in the town that I grew up in a small town, um, you know, very few of the moms of my friends worked full time. Some did. Actually, one of my friend's moms was my kindergarten teacher. I loved her so much. One of my favorites. (laughs) Um, But it was, you know, I think more normative for the moms to work part-time or not at all. So, you know, that was what, what I was raised with thinking like, you know, two career family, it it's going to work out. And I don't, it, it was only when I was starting to think about having kids and having kids myself that my mom was really honest with me about, you know, the challenges just in terms of the time crunch and the overwhelm that I know that she experienced when um, you know, we were really little and I'm honestly really grateful for it. Um, I think it made me feel a lot less guilty when things were hard because I was like, okay, they're just hard. There's no yeah. value or moral yeah. judgment on it. Um, and I think, you know, I think my brother and I turned out pretty well. So <laughs> I can fully relate to the, that scenario. Like my mom was a nurse and my dad had like a sign business. And so they were both working most of the time. I was definitely a latchkey kid. I just like biked all around my town. There's a small town and stuff like that. And yeah, when we were really little, my mom was like working nights as a nurse. And so she would like, we would go walk down to this little, little um, beach. I grew up in Rhode Island near like that was down the street from her house. And I'm pretty sure she would like take a nap like while we were like at the beach and then she would go to work at night. But yeah, it was totally normalized for me to have both parents working. I didn't try to think of like I, the most of the most of the moms, I think of my friends, they were all kind of working, too. I, they, I think I remember meeting someone where mom didn't work. I thinking like, oh, that's weird. That's like the 50s or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's pretty normal now. Like that's it's pretty normal. And I mean, I guess has that changed? Like it seems like it would be a more or less constant trajectory towards more women working has it yeah. has it like gone towards more women work has it like ever dropped like as far i mean because with the pandemic a lot of women no yeah so i mean 
essentially since in the 80s, and I don't quote me on these statistics, I don't have them in front of me, but I think around 60% of mothers with kids under 18 at home worked. So that's still a majority. Um, but it just went up and up and up and up. And obviously there okay. was a blip in 2020. But um, I think people felt thought that maybe that lasted longer than it did. Most of the people, most of the mothers with kids at home who left work for a period of time in 2020, 2021 are back. And now we see the levels of the workforce exactly where they were in 2019, more or less, um, for, for moms. And so I think around, now it's around 76%. Um, again, I don't have the numbers in front of me, so mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but that's my memory. Um, so yeah, the vast majority of uh, moms in America work. And I think the other sort of misnomer that I always uh, like to say is there's this idea that there's some war between stay-at-home moms and working moms when, in fact, they're often the same people. So you can be a stay-at-home mom for a couple of years when your kids are young. And mm-hmm. the vast majority of people who spend some time as stay-at-home moms go go back to the workforce in some sense at some point. Or they, you know, work before they stayed home. So it's like the idea that we're in these separate camps and we're this entirely different group of people is just not true. And it's a way to sort of foment discord among women that I don't think actually really exists um, or shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's helpful. I think that's helpful to understand. I think it's enlightening. OK, so let's talk about then why you wrote Screaming on the Inside, because the subtitle is The Unsustainability of American motherhood. Can you give us a little bit of an overview? There's so many details in this book that I love, but I'd love for if you could kind of give us a little bit of an overview. Sure. So um, I have been covering issues around parenting in the United States and the social net, social safety net that does not exist for us uh, for about 10 years before I wrote the book. I was covering that, you know, lack of paid leave for parents, um, lack of sort of childcare support and the impacts of those things. I started covering that before I had kids. Um, and so I was always very tuned into these issues, but it wasn't until I got pregnant with my older daughter um, and I got incredibly sick. I had hyperemesis and I got incredibly depressed um, and I had to quit a job that all these issues that were sort of statistical or, or reported um, work that I did became incredibly personal. And so I kept reporting on these things and being frustrated that they weren't the main part, you know, a big story in politics that was ongoing. Um, I feel like it's something that is under discussed considering how many people are impacted by the lack of this safety net. And it wasn't until the pandemic came and everything fell away, all of the structures of society for everybody, not just parents, that it did become a national conversation. And more people seemed to feel that it was an urgent issue that needed taken care of in the near term. And so that was the impetus for starting to write the book. But the issues that were in it were things that I had been thinking about for a long time. Yeah, I've been thinking about this for a long time, too, because um, because I, I, you know, for me, you know, I teach a mindful parenting course and I teach about mindfulness, but it's interesting to answer questions from people. You know, I, I do interviews and answer questions from people about how to like, you know, because I had a big issue with my temper and yelling and how to stop, like how to like tame your temper. But to answer these questions within the context of that incredible lack of support 
right? Like within the context of like the vast majority of people I'm talking to, like we, you know, there are people working two jobs. We have no support. We have no childcare. Like childcare is really expensive. And, you know, this incredible thing. And I've, I have a friend who lives in the Netherlands and she's like, she ended up splitting up with, with the dad who brought her there, but she's like, I'm not coming back to the United States. She's like, I have free childcare from the beginning. It is very high quality. They have like little lunches for my little child with real plates and knives every single day. And it's amazing. You know, she pays more taxes, but she gets all this incredible benefits and all this support from the, you know, from the structures of the government. And it's, um, it's very frustrating to see it not be talked about from from my point of view, too. I really get that. Yeah. And I mean, I think that there is a way in which it seems politically impossible, but I don't think that it is. Um, I think it needs to be reframed more broadly because as long as it's only talked about as a mom issue and a women's mm-hmm. issue, we're never going to get anywhere. But caregiving is something that most people in any society are going to have to do at some point in their lives, whether it's caretaking for an elderly family member, for a spouse. Um, And so I think when we, and so then it stops being seen as like, oh, this is an entitlement for yuppie moms and, you know, all they do, you know, they're just like frivolous and they want to work for pleasure and all of this stuff that is just frankly not true. Um, But when you take it and it causes resentment when it exists. So, I mean, there's a lot of reporting about tech companies that have generous benefits for parents on leave. Um, It can cause resentment from people who don't have kids because they are, you know, they feel like it's some, you know, entitlement that they're being deprived of, which, you know, we should not be talking about maternity leave as if it's like a paid vacation. But I think if we take this away from just being this thing that moms are asking for and demanding and um, make it more of something that it is human to desire um, and need, I think we will have a lot more success politically getting some of the things that would make all of our lives easier. Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcasts right after this break. Parenting can be loud, stressful, and rough some days. And we want to be able to go to bed and take care of ourselves in a really beautiful way. And that's why I love that Cozy Earth is a sponsor of the podcast. Cozy Earth offers bedding products that will transform your sleep. The bedding is temperature regulating, which is like a huge sleep benefit, has superior softness, incredible fabric, and incredibly high quality. All the products come with a 10-year warranty. Truly, incorporating Cozy Earth products into your self-care routine can enhance your sleep quality and your overall wellness. You deserve to treat yourself to the ultimate in comfort and indulgence after all the day's craziness of parenting with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear. And it's a way to prioritize your self-care and sleep health. You deserve it. And here's an exclusive Mother's Day offer just for our listeners. Use the code MINDFUL35 for 35% off. That's awesome. At CozyEarth.com. That's coupon code MINDFUL35 for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. As parents, we know that there are so many things in life that we have to compromise on. 
But when it comes to your health, there is no compromise. So don't go back to that doctor that doesn't really listen to you. Instead, check out ZocDoc. This is a place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance. So literally, there's no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you actually know about. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. The typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between just 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com slash mindful and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash mindful. ZocDoc.com slash mindful. The pressure for like a long time has been on moms. And I really like this sort of first chapter. You go through sort of the history of the pressure of uh, on American moms. And, you know, you you quote this like like ridiculous, like Lysol ad from 1936 issue of Good Housekeeping that says, Madam, you are to blame, (laughs) you know, and just all this this sort of blame and shame and sort of guilt that has been Put on moms and the like idea of the super mom. Can you kind of take us on a, a quick romp through that? Sure. Um, so a very truncated version of this history is once the Industrial Revolution happened, uh, men left the house to work and women stayed home to manage the domestic sphere. Um, this obviously leaves out a whole group of people. Black women always worked. Immigrant women always worked. Working class women always worked. But it started to be this idea that if you were a quote unquote good mother, which usually was a white upper class Christian mother, um, you managed the household and it was your prime responsibility. And anything that happened in that sphere um, was up to you to go well. And there is a book that was a bestseller in the year 1900. Um, that I also quote from that I think about all the time. And it said, and by the way, the woman who wrote it never had kids, um, oh. said that a child should never be away from a woman's mind. You shouldn't, when you're wake, when you're going to sleep, when you're waking up, when you're walking down the road, when you're eating dinner, you should always be thinking of your children and nothing else, which is just not possible. Uh, wow. If, that, if that's the bar for being a good mother, no one is a good um, but that was what was idealized. And so, you know, even as society changed, women got more rights, um, you know, women became much more educated. I mean, now, as many people talk about, women outnumber men and college graduates. Um, those sorts of demands on mothers still are with us. Um, so in terms of sort of the super mom, it's this idea, well, you can have a job, but don't think that for a second you're not also responsible for everything that goes on at home. So it's just sort of instead of removing um, ideals or demands, uh, you're just adding more on. And at the same time, you know, people in heterosexual relationships, men are doing more. Men are doing more childcare. They're doing more domestic work than they have, but not to uh, not enough to balance out how much women are now working outside the home. Um, not even close. And there's a lot of data that shows uh, men are very happy to have 
working spouses, but they are not happy to ever have to sacrifice anything in their own career. Um, so you'll see in two-income households, when there is a conflict, it's almost always the women's career that will suffer. And there is, you know, economically rational reasons for that. Um, if the man is in a higher paying job, it makes sense. Um, but it's just entangled with so many inequalities, just up and down the, the scale, up and down the systems, the choices that are made and the careers that are, you know, highly remunerative, all of that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's bringing us up to today. Okay. And so, yeah, and, and I see this, like, you know, so and when I work with clients, sometimes we're like, I'm trying to find, like, let's see if we can find some, let's carve out some little bit of time for yourself, right? And we start to go into, like, what is your day like? Who has is responsible for what? You know, when when do you have time that is your own? That When can we find this time? And it's really interesting to see those things, like, because, because I come from a very egalitarian relationship. I'm not quite sure how I got so feminist because now I look back at my mom and she's doing everything. My dad would be helpless without her. So I'm not sure how I ever was like, I'm not doing any of your laundry. Like, that's your thing to do. Like, please, no, thank you. Um, but there, it's amazing to me to see how many people, women my age and even and younger, younger moms than me now are have just take on like there's no discussion about it and they're just taking on all those responsibilities without any discussion about it including like one of the biggest ones being like all of the logistical planning for doctor's appointments and school nurse and health forms and and this class and that class and all the the communication that happens with all that stuff like you know it's it's Amazing to me how it's all just not even discussed. It's just taken for granted that moms yeah. do all this stuff. Yeah. I mean, that certainly came up a lot in my reporting. And um, part of the issue is that even if you try to be egalitarian and you're trying to sort of uh, divvy up the uh, responsibilities, uh, you had to, to sort of train the rest of the world to understand that. So, for example, often when there's something wrong at school, they just call the mom first. They always call the mom first. And in their defense, they call the mom first because even if they're told, you know, in the families where they're like, no, you call the dad first, the dad doesn't answer. He's not calling back fast enough. And so um, the administrators are doing what is logical for them to do. But it's, there's so many sort of external pressures um, that are encouraging the mom to be the primary parent, even if that is not how your household functions. And I've talked to men who are stay-at-home dads or they're single dads, and they feel really alienated often by groups of moms at school who don't include them in, you know, various things. So it's not just simply a story of like, why don't dads step up? It's like, well, even when they try, it's actually an up, it's often an uphill battle to be treated as the primary parent. So I think, you know, culturally, we all have a lot of work and change to do to get to a place where um, you know, things aren't so uneven. So I'd love to like dive into your own story because you went into motherhood and you, it was, it was a struggle for you. Like it is a struggle for many, many moms. Do you, do you, um, do you mind sharing some of your own story about how it became such a, such a challenge with you, with your, your own mental, emotional health, as well as your work? Sure. So, I mean, 
really the biggest struggle was when I was pregnant. Like I said, I had um, I was on my second day of a new job when I found out I was pregnant with my older daughter. Uh, My husband and I had theoretically stopped trying before uh, I got that job when I got that job. because I was like, I don't want to be pregnant my first day of work. But then I was already pregnant. Um, And so uh, oops, (laughs) almost immediately after that, um, I just started throwing up endlessly all day, every day seven times a day. I couldn't keep any food down. Uh, I was terrible at that job. I couldn't do it. I mean, I just couldn't do anything, obviously. uh, And I felt really ashamed because I felt I was uh, just all of the bad stereotypes of moms at work. I was just proving them all true. Can't do both. Um, And I ended up quitting that job after two months um, because it just was unsustainable. Um, like the subtitle of my book. Like I couldn't do it. I was so sick. I had to focus on my health. I was so nervous that either I was going to have to be hospitalized or uh, I would lose the baby because I wasn't having, I just wasn't keeping any food down. Um, And so I spent a month or two in bed and spent the rest of that pregnancy actually feeling a weird sense of relief. So like when your life implodes like that, where just you have to just focus on your own health and your own family, um, it's sort of clarifying. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was clarifying to me in that, you know, it's just a job. You Mm -hmm. can get another job. It's not, um, you know, you can't let yourself just fall into an abyss because this this thing happened that was really hard. And in a weird way, um, it made my early days of motherhood, I think a little bit easier because I was already like, well, all these things that I feared would happen did happen. And I got Mm -hmm. through them. And Mm -hmm. so I'm just going to lower the expectations on myself in terms of what these experiences should be and should look like. So I didn't have a, I had no birth plan. My birth plan was arrive at the hospital. I did not have any expectations of what the birth should look like. I didn't have any expectations around, you know, many things of early motherhood. It was more just like, let's get through this and try to enjoy this baby. And also I, and as a result, I I think back to that first year of actual motherhood, not the pregnancy as a really happy one, as a really idyllic one. Um, I went back to work as a freelancer, um, which also helps because I could, you know, make my own schedule. Um, it was nearly full time. I worked you know, between 30 and 40 hours a week. But because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't strict nine to five, I could spend more time with my baby, which is what I wanted to do. Um, So, you know, again, there are many privileges that undergirded that experience. My husband was employed. He had health insurance. Um, We weren't going to be destitute without my, you know, without a full-time job. Um, Although I had a very strict goals for myself about how much I needed to earn. So, you know, that was in some ways helpful. And then, you know, uh, we decided to have a second kid, uh, had a miscarriage in between my two girls, which was not fun. But, you know, a first trimester miscarriage is so common. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't mind talking about it because I just think it's so something that also needs to be normalized because it happens to really most people who try to have um, multiple kids. And so... Uh, and then I got pregnant with my older daughter, uh, with my younger daughter, rather. Um, and we realized that, you know, it, financially, I needed to go back to a staff job um, to make that work. And, you know, mostly that was a good experience, but it definitely 
uh, there was more conflict. Our lives were easier when I was freelance. And so, you know, we sort of had to reassess what our days look like, what, you know, who's responsibility for what. Um, and, you know, then COVID happened, which disaster for everybody. But we, you know, I think less of one for us, honestly, in some ways, because um, we moved in with my parents about two or three months into it. And so we had four adults to help with the two kids. And that's nice ratio. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> although I always joke, it was amazing. I, you know, honestly would do it again. Um, but the help that the free help is not like help you pay for. <laughs> they don't listen quite the same way, I bet. It, exactly. It was just like, oh, we're, we don't work afternoons. And it's like, okay. <laughs> But we got through it. We got through it. And we wouldn't, one of us would have had to take a leave from work if, if we hadn't had the additional help before schools opened again. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I think at this point, I feel really, you know, really happy with the way our lives work out. And, you know, we have two kids who are in elementary school, which is so helpful. I mean, they're just a delight. And it's so much easier than when they were little, little and needed help with everything. We needed to watch them every second. And so I always joke, like, there should be an It Gets Better project for the parents of very young children because it does. Yeah. I've never been so tired in my life as when my kids were one and four. Like, I just remember oh my that God, summer. Yeah. I remember that summer. Uh, just I was my younger daughter just decided that she was going to wake up between four and five in the morning every day. She was and she wasn't upset. She was in a great mood. She just was awake. Like, I'm not a morning person. I was just, I was wrecked. Um, So it is much easier now that they are a little older and more self-sufficient and just delightful to hang around with. I agree. It's like the preschool years are so, so intensive. My my daughter and I, my 13-year-old daughter and I recently went up to help out my cousin or just for a couple days. And my cousin um, uh, recently lost her husband and is pregnant and has a one-year-old and a three-year-old. And um, the so we hung out with the one-year-old and the three-year-old for a couple of days. And my 13-year-old daughter was pretty funny, actually. Like, so we're hanging out outside with the one-year-old and the three-year-old. And it's fun for me because it's like one, it's like a day and a half. It's, you know, fine. And my daughter, who's 13, like, as we came in for their nap time after hanging out with them for the day, she's like, Oh my gosh, mom. She's like, I'm so exhausted. I am more exhausted than I was for Klondike, which is this like intensive winter scout three day event, right? That they do. And she's like, I'm more exhausted than Klondike. Is this normal or is there something wrong with me? <laughs> yeah. I was like, I think it's just childcare because it's so attention heavy. Like it's just you, your attention has to be on. You know, it's like those like master chess players, right, who like burn bazillions of calories when they're in a chess tournament because that attention is like a a real drain on our resources, uh, you know, or our body budget and all of that. Now, we were hanging out with my nephews who are uh, newborn and almost three. And when we were leaving, my older daughter was like, now I understand why you say you love being an aunt. Because like (laughs) aunt life is the best. You get to snuggle a cute baby. You get to play with them for a couple hours. Then you get to go. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. 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 And you talk. And so it's interesting your story because you had I, lo- I liked how you said how like this sort of like everything, you know, just imploding helped you to lower your expectations on yourself. And I think that's something that most moms, 
not that we want everyone's lives to implode, but we have really high expectations of ourselves, right? And you and you write about this in the book and you talk about the guilt, right? Like, and you say like, um, you know, I, I spoke in this chapter for this, you know, this word that how women felt in their inability to subsume themselves fully into early motherhood and it was guilty. They felt guilty for continuing to work or leaving their children in the care of others. And they felt guilty for about leaving work and feeling lost or they or never having a job they felt was a career in the first place. They felt guilty about having postpartum depression. They felt guilty about not living up to perfectly heteronormative, naturalistic, pristine ideals of their communities. And even when they were deeply aware of the flaws in society's ideals, those ideals got into their heads. And I think that's so, so true, this like overwhelming guilt. And it's just like, I'm not sure like what my question is like, but, you know, what do we do about this? I don't know. Like, as you've explored this, what have you discovered? So I think it's a number of things. I mean, the reason I focus on American moms is because I do think it is particularly American because we are such an individualistic society that mothers in particular feel like if anything goes wrong, it's my fault. It's all on me. It is all on me to shape this child. I am responsible. No one's going to help me. No one should help me. If I need help, there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. So I think that's like one thing to know. It is not like this. Like you said, your friend in the Netherlands, um, you know, there in in the book, I include some research um, with uh, moms in other European countries. And the mindset is just completely different. It's not what am I doing for my kids? It's like, how am I being with my kids? Am I just spending time with them? That seems like that's the bar for being a good mom. And if that were the bar, I think we would all feel a lot better. So it's knowing that some of these expectations and feelings are sort of culturally constructed here specifically. Mm -hmm. So that's one. I think number two, and this has been, you know, it's just easier said than done. It's having um, trusted friends that are supportive and make you feel good about yourself and good about your mothering and that you can Mm -hmm. vent to and that are not going to judge you. Uh, and that can give you, you know, um, are there for you in ways that are not our material. So, you know, after 10 years in this neighborhood, we have multiple families that we are close enough to to say, like, I'm in a pinch. Can you pick up my kid from school? Like, we have a family emergency. Can you do X, Y and Z? And I would feel totally comfortable doing that. But that takes years to, you know, unless, you know, if you're moved back to your hometown and you have that, that's amazing. But so many people don't live near family or don't live near sort of communities that they're already entrenched in. And so, you know, as much as you can, building, you know, this, a group of supportive friends, and they don't even have to be moms, just people who are going to support you in this journey, like immeasurably helpful. Um, because your spouse, if you, you know, do have a spouse or a partner, they can't be everything. Like you need something outside that. And I do think that there is something specific to the challenges that moms face. Um, my husband's totally empathetic. Um, and he's like the best thing about him is he can. We've been together a long time. So we started dating when I was 23 and he was 24. And at this point, he can see me and he he can see my face and he can see when I am just done. And he will say, why don't you go upstairs and lie down? Like, why don't you go get out of here? Go for a walk. Like he just having a partner that can be that perceptive and see when you're at your wits end um, or that you can verbalize that to just be like, I've had a day. I need you to be, you know, the main dude when you come home. Um, I think that's something else that, you know, is at least for me, I can only speak for myself, like 
priceless. We're in it together. And he knows, you know, is really seeing me um, in those moments. And I do the same for him, of course, when he is like, you know, just had it with the kids. I'm like, go to the gym, get out of here. Don't worry, I got it. Like, I think that's just incredibly important. Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcast right after this break. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And this season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and busts common myths about special education. So I checked out the episode on the difference between IEPs and 504 plans because my daughter Maggie uses a 504 plan and it was really, really helpful. It went over all the differences, which one's better, how to get them, different myths and what your rights are, all kinds of different things that you should understand if your child may need extra help in education through an IEP or a 504 plan. The tone is super helpful, friendly, and smart. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains. So my husband's had hair thinning issues for years, for a long time. It's not something he'd love to have, and he's done some things for it. But recently, he started using Nutrafol, and oh my gosh, we have actually seen quite a difference. Did you know that for women, hair thinning happens in approximately one in two women? And if you're among them, I want you to know that you're definitely not alone. It's normal, but it's not openly talked about and going through it can feel lonely and frustrating. But you can join over one million people who are doing something about it with Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding, like my honey. Physician formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol supplements support healthy hair growth from within by targeting root causes of thinning, including stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism as they evolve throughout a woman's life. And while many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol's women's hair growth supplement for six months. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription required, free shipping, and automated deliveries to ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code MINDFULPARENTING. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code MINDFULPARENTING. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code Mindful Parenting. Yeah, I mean, that whole like building a supportive friend network and a community and all that stuff, like that's so, so important. I mean, but then to also go back to like the, 
situation, like, wouldn't it be nice if we could all just like, we could all like have a little less anxiety. I mean, and you talk about this, like that anxiety, shame, jealousy, shame, and guilt are like the four horsemen of the mom, mompocalypse, which I think is like. I have to give credit to the psychologist, Elise DeMarco, who really, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, was like, gave a lot of good advice on that. And she is the one who really um, focused up on those four factors that just affect so many moms and make our day to day worse than it needs to be. Yeah. I mean, I think that like if we like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not super political on the podcast generally, but like if we had universal health care or something like that, like if, if we could just like relieve some of the stress of like, I have to have a job for the, the health care and all the different things, right? Like if we had some more safety net for that, like you know, one of the big things, like we talk about the mental health crisis being like enormous right now, not just for moms, but for teens and for all these different people. And like, like if we could just reduce the number of things we could, we had to be anxious about, like that would go a long way to help this problem, you think, you know, it's like, it seems so yeah. obvious to me. And it just is like, why is it so hard for us to figure this out? I don't know. Yeah. I, I actually think it's quite tragic that some of this stuff has been so politicized because you know, yeah. I talk about I mentioned this in a lot of interviews because it just is so illuminating um, for a column I did. I talked to a pollster who uh, mostly does focus groups with Republicans, and she was telling me that whenever she does focus groups about paid leave, it is very popular among everybody. And she gave the example of a dad works an hourly job. He's conservative. He lives uh, in a rural area. And all he wants is paid leave so that he can support his wife who just had a C-section and she can't lift anything. They have, there's no nursing, there's, you can't hire a nurse because rural areas have nursing shortages. Um, they don't have family nearby that can help out. All he wants to do is be there for his wife. That's not political. Um, I think that's just human. And so I think it is something that, yes, the, you know, the nitty gritty of what the, laws are going to be and who pays for it and where that funding comes from, that's going to be, you know, political sausage making and how it gets figured out. But simply the desire and the need to be able to to be there for family members um, without going broke, I don't think that's mm -hmm. political, or at least yeah. it should be. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree with you. So, yes, Jessica and I are fixing the world. We're just going to make sure that we don't have to worry about that. And then... But the other thing you talk about, though, is like another, going back to sort of like the shame and the jealousy. Like we we see now the social media world. We see like everybody's perfection and we see these archetypes kind of playing out in social media that are really frustrating and hard. And they're kind of getting into our psyche. Talk to us a little bit about that. I mean, I think. We, you know, there is a ton of research about social media. I think we're not even scratching the surface of the ways that it's changing our brains. It's changing the way we think about each other. It's comparing. It's looking at people whose lives you have no context for outside of the images that they're showing you. And I almost think that that's the most destructive part because it's like, OK, you see the mom, you know, from school. She posts the perfect picture of herself with her kids. But you see her at drop off where she looks a mess or she see her like, you know, her kids having a tantrum because your kids having a tantrum like, you know, that she's not perfect because you have the context for her actual life. But that's not what you see on social media. And as much as intellectually, you, you know, it's 2023. We all know that social media is not real. 
seeing those images is incredibly powerful and uh, it does something to us. And I think it's really hard to say like, oh, you know, it's not real. I don't have to be like that. Um, I don't have a solution beyond, you know, not looking at it, which obviously I still do. Yeah, what do you literally all yeah, the time? I'm a garbage monster. Um, I mean, the biggest, so I think it's sort of unrealistic to say, oh, you just get off it, go cold turkey, because it's also the way you communicate with people. I mm-hmm. keep up with my, co- you know, friends from college that don't live here via social media. I can keep up with their lives. Like, I think demonizing it and saying it's all bad is just not true. And it is such no. part of our the fabric of all of our lives now. Um, we need to just have a sort of harm reduction relationship to it, um, where if someone is making you feel less than bad about yourself, unfollow, mute, just be really proactive about checking in with yourself and how you're feeling as you're looking at it. Like that's the only way I can sort of manage my relationship with it, which is on- ongoing. Um, you know, I often think if I didn't have to keep up with social media for work, I would quit tomorrow um, or at least, you know, look at it in a very different way. But it's, you know, there's just no other way, especially Twitter for me. Um, I've spent, you know, I've been on it since 2009, 14 years curating a list of people that I follow who are on my beat. And that's academics, reporters, all different kinds of people. And so I use it as an RSS feed almost. Like there's so many studies I would not see. There's so many news articles that are relevant to what I do. So many surveys and polls that I need to do that strengthen my work that I, if any of your listeners have a solution for me to stop looking at it, I'm all ears. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Really too useful for my job. For both of us. Because yeah. similarly, like I do this podcast. I have my book, Raising Good Humans. I do, the, you know, so I connect with all these people on Instagram. Yeah. And then I see there, you know, and I'm and I'm like, got to turn off my comparison brain, you know, where I'm just like, it's really uh, hard. I have like a 45 minute timer set on my phone. If, if that like comes to that, if we get to the end of that and I'm like, oh, then it's definitely been a day. And I'm like, really try not to like, give myself permission to come past that. I that's think like, it's also being aware of like whatever your triggers are and they might change. Yeah. They're not permanent, but like there's certain things I see that just without fail make me feel bad about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're different for everybody. Some mm-hmm. things like you can look at and they're going to be fine. Other things, like the example that I give in the book um, mm-hmm. or I gave it maybe in some essay I wrote. Um, when I had a miscarriage, I had a friend who was uh, do almost the same time as when I would have given birth with a miscarriage. I had to mute her on every platform. I could not look at her. I just yeah. was like, you know, I couldn't. It just was too sad. You know, it just yeah. made me think about my loss. And once, you know, a couple of years passed, fine. Like I could get over it. But in that sort of acute mourning period, it just was too sad. Um, yeah. So again, that's an incredibly personal and specific trigger, but everybody has theirs. Um yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so we've laid out a lot of problems. <laughs> we've laid out a lot of problems, and your book really goes through that, and I really recommend it. I think if you are, uh, dear listener, if you are especially like uh, Jessica's chapters about pregnancy and early childhood and things like that, if you want to feel seen and heard, um, you, you will it, with this book, and I think that is one of the real strengths of it. Um, so if we 
want to make things more sustainable and given the world that we live in now where, you know, we have the certain, you know, the, the political structural supports that we have now, how now having kind of gone through the ringer, because you really did go through the ringer in a, a big way, what do you have any advice for the listener who's like, I, I am, I am struggling. Is, is there anything that we can, we can give this listener? So I think the first thing is just to say it is hard. It's hard for everyone. I feel like it doesn't have to be comparison because I think a lot of people, especially if you're, you know, reasonably financially comfortable, you say, well, so-and-so has it worse. My kids are healthy. You can be grateful for all of the things you have while also acknowledging that you're having a hard time. I think that's the first thing. I think just being able to have those feelings without that added layer of feeling bad about the feelings. Yes. That is huge. And you're talking about this like just permission to be human, right? Like permission yeah. to struggle. Like you are allowed to, you don't have to be perfect. You, you, you know, your kids don't need you to be perfect. They need you to be human anyway. Jessica, I love this. Like you permission to feel those feelings and acknowledge that it's hard. Yeah. I, I think there's a whole sort of genre of parenting advice that implies that every conversation you have with your child could scar them for life. Every tiny little thing you do can have major impact. And the fact is, it's the cumulative. It's years. It's every day. It's showing up. Um, and I don't, I, I think we've lost th the thread. We've lost the plot. Like, we're not. it's not all going to be perfect. You are going to yell at your kids sometimes. You're going to say the quote unquote wrong thing. Because you know what? Even if you say the thing that a psychologist told you to say, your kid could take it wrong. Like, you can't control the way they receive what you say. Like, it's impossible. You can't control the way anybody receives what you say. So I think I, I think we need to take a step back and, and just try to be ourselves with our kids mm -hmm. because there's not one way to raise a thriving child. Each kid has different challenges. I think anyone with more than one child sees that they are their own little people. I mean, I always describe that as one of the great joys of parenthood for me is seeing my two girls be their unique individual selves and and seeing them figure life out for themselves on their terms. Um, so I think that idea that like we don't have all of the control over our kids. We just don't. It's not how it works. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's another thing to remember. And I think sort of politically speaking, it can seem like things are stuck. You know, we still don't have paid leave at the federal level. We still, you know, we basically don't have a system of child care. Um, but with that, I always remain hopeful because I look at the long view and that's part of why I include so much history in the book. I think all the time how when my mom got married, she could not get her own credit card. You know, wow. that was the seventies in the seventies. Women could not get mortgages, credit cards. You know, you, you had to have a guarantor who was a man. Like it just was, uh, I interviewed a woman for the book who's in her eighties, who's a professor. And she was saying in her first job in the Baltimore public school system, um, she had to sign a contract that said once she started showing, if she got pregnant, she had to resign. You could not be pregnant. <sighs> this is recent history. So even I'm not saying we can't keep fighting or shouldn't keep fighting or that everything's great now. We should just have a party. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying like the reason that I remain hopeful is because I see how far we have come in such a short amount of time. And I think we can continue to move forward. Um, so I think that's the other thing to always think about. I love that. I think that's a really great note. 
to end on. Thank you so much, Jessica, for all the, I enjoy all your, and I really loved Screaming on the Inside. It has a hilarious wallpaper cover with this pregnant mom puking in a, it's like all like flowers and like pregnant mom puking in a toilet bowl. It's, <laughs> it's brilliant. I love that so much. Um, yeah, I, I highly recommend it. Where can people find out more about your work and reach out to you if they want to? So uh, I write a twice weekly newsletter for the New York Times. Uh, some of it is about parenting, but I'm also writing about other topics these days. I'm doing a, a huge series on religion and how Americans are losing religion, um, much less religious cu- country than we used to be. Um, so you can find me at the New York Times. Um, and uh, on Twitter, I'm at Jess Gross. And my last name is spelled G-R-O-S-E. And on Instagram, I'm at Jess Gross Writes. And yeah, I have a website that's just my name, but I don't really update it that much because I'm lazy. <laughs> that's totally okay. <laughs> I feel like it's so satisfying to know that it's not just you, that it's not just in your head, that it's hard and that you're struggling. I feel like I don't know, maybe, maybe not for you, but for me anyway, it's so satisfying to know that it's like, oh, there's all these reasons. Like, it's not just something I'm making up that it's super hard. And I think that, so I hope that insight helps you as you come to the end of this podcast, dear listener. And, um, and I appreciate you listening and I appreciate the reviews that listeners leave so much. I want to give a shout out to Danielle 9918 for their five-star review. They said, great insights. I really enjoyed this podcast and I've learned a lot. Thank you so much for that review. It makes a big difference to uh, give it out there. So thank you for sharing your review. And I'm wondering what you think about this episode, dear listener. Like, have you got some feedback for me, for Jessica? Let me know. Tag me at Mindful Mama Mentor on Instagram. And I hope you have a sustainable week. I hope you have a sustainable and peaceful and joyful week ahead of you, my friend. I really appreciate you listening and sharing and all the good things. And I will be back to talk to you with self-coaching call or another great guest next week. And I hope it supports you and your family to grow and learn and thrive. So thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you again soon. Namaste. I'd say definitely do it. It's really helpful. It will change your relationship with your kids for the better. It will help you communicate better. And just, I'd say communicate better as a person, as a wife, as a spouse. It's been really a positive influence in our lives. So definitely do it. I'd say definitely do it. It's so worth it. The money really is inconsequential when you get so much benefit from being a better parent to your children and feeling like you're connecting more with them and not feeling like you're yelling all the time or you're like, why isn't things working? I would say definitely do it. It's so, so worth it. It'll change you. No matter what age someone's child is, it's a great opportunity for personal growth and it's a great investment in someone's family. I'm very thankful I have this. You can continue in your old habits that aren't working or you can learn some new tools and 
gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting. Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for a community of people who get it, who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation? Hi, I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting membership. You'll be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship, not only with your children, but with yourself. It will translate into lasting, connected relationships, not only with your children, but your partner too. Let me change your life. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com to add your name to the wait list. So you will be the first to be notified when I open the membership for enrollment. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. mindfulparentingcourse.com. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the no guilt mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.